Today's episode of Future Says is proudly sponsored by Oracle. Oracle offers integrated suites of applications plus secure autonomous infrastructure in the Oracle Cloud. For more information, check out www.oracle.com. On today's episode of Future Says, we have Rajiv Verma, a data science senior specialist at Magna. His career has evolved from designing control systems to working on autonomous driving as well as complex manufacturing analytics. His philosophy of learn, apply, teach and repeat comes from a background which includes a PhD in electrical engineering as well as a Master's of Science in both mechanical and electrical engineering from the University of Michigan. Hello Rajiv and welcome to Future Says, great to have you on the show. Thank you, delighted to be here. So Rajiv, we've heard a little bit about you already on the introduction. But can you give us a, a bit of a deeper dive into your career progression and how you found yourself in your position at Magna today? All right. So um, let me start with my training and I can then chart the evolution to my current job. Uh, so my undergraduate training is in mechanical engineering, uh, which is basically you know applied physical sciences, right? Um, and uh, from there, I went on for graduate studies at University of Michigan uh, in control systems. And basically what that gave me was a systems view of the world, right? So let me just dive a little bit deeper into that uh, and explain at a very high level what control systems is about, right? So uh, with control systems, uh, you take any system, right? It can be a physical system, biological system, or any other system that you're interested in. You define a task or behavior that you want this system to follow, okay? And from there, you identify the signals that you're interested in. You add sensors to collect or measure those signals. You add actuators to control the behavior of the system, right? And then on top of that, you add some computation. So it can be external computation or onboard computation along with algorithms, okay? And you know, then from there, you can calculate uh, the proper uh, actuation to apply and issue commands to achieve the behavior that you set out to achieve, right? So that's basically at a high level uh, what control systems is. And now the question is, how has this helped me with my current job? So I found that because of my training, when I work on problems, I tend to identify the systems or the plant, you know, in control lingo, it's called the plant, uh, that we are trying to influence or trying to work. And from there, I try to understand the operating principles of the plant. And I try to understand uh, the ways in which we can model the plant, okay? How we can affect the plant, what we can uh, measure from the plant. And in data science or machine learning, you know, you, you can call this by various names, you know, uh, key process input variables, key process output variables, or independent variables, dependent variables, you know, no matter what. And model in control, sci uh, in control science is differential equations, difference equations, you know, and so on, state-space equations. In uh, data science or machine learning, it's more of black box. Um, you know, you can have neural networks or um, you know linear models and so on. But once you have all this figured out, uh, you are then better positions to predict the behavior of the system and then take appropriate actions, right? So that's I think what uh, control background and controls has given me. Now coming back to my current job, which is basically around manufacturing, so application of data science in manufacturing. And I would like to take a step back here and just give a brief overview on industrial revolutions, right? So um, we have first industrial revolution, which started in mid 18th to mid 19th century, primarily in Britain, um, 
around uh, use of mechanization in factories and steam powered locomotives second industrial revolution which is which was mid 19th to uh, 20th century which led to increased productivity through internal combustion engine use electricity telegraph telephone railroads and so on and that brings us to the third industrial revolution which was mainly um, a result of um, computing uh, communication technologies and robotics. So all of the machines that are being used, they have some computing on board and it can make some decisions. Obviously, there are sensors, there are actuators, and based on that, you can optimize these machines at a local level, right? So that's what, that's what third industrial revolution was for. What this led to was proliferation of sensors and actuators and also creation of a large quantity of data, okay? But this data is at a local level. Now, these machines are generating a lot of data. It comes into existence, and then it disappears, right? Let's say a laser uh, welding machine. It, it generates a lot of data on back reflection, you know, the airflow, uh, the power, uh, the path. Uh, and as soon as the weld is finished, poof, it, it disappears, right? So the fourth industrial revolution, which we are in right now, is all about harnessing the value of Right? So this is characterized by technologies like AI, artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, Internet of Things, 3D printing, and so on. Right? So this is where data science plays a central role. Right? And the data science in this context is the uh, use of analytical techniques such as statistics, machine learning, AI to make meaningful decisions right? based on this data. And the, the crux of this, and I'm coming back to my first point now, is that in manufacturing, we work with physical systems, okay? And that's where my background mechanical as well as controls comes into play, right? So I have found in my experience to um, having a systems view of the world is immensely, immensely beneficial and making sense of manufacturing data is hard without understanding the physics of the underlying process, which means that either somebody from the manufacturing side or somebody in your team needs to understand the physical process and connect the dots. Yeah with data science. Brilliant introduction, Rajiv, and, and you make it sound like such a natural progression from understanding the domain to now there being data and you being maybe the, the best placed person or the best with the best place background to, to start to analyze that data. Is that something then you've seen on a wider scale in the industry in general? You said a mechanical engineer background. Is that something you've seen a lot of mechanical engineers moving into data science? And what about that wider uh, magna team? So I have definitely seen that. Um, so Magna has its roots in manufacturing, right? Uh, manufacturing is in our DNA. So um, a lot of these manufacturing problems, they are realized at the floor level, right? At the shop floor level. And I have seen Magna engineers being extremely interested in learning data science and uh, you know taking that route, coming from a manufacturing or mechanical background and then getting into data science as well as from the other, other way around, right? So our, our team, for example, I'm a part of Magna Corporate R&D. Um, our department is called Data Analytics Simulation and IoT. We have a very small team, you know, about six, seven people led by a really practical and visionary leader, uh, you know, Benjamin Salzman. And all of our team members, for example, they have graduate or PhD degrees in data science or computer science, right? And um, uh, they are all well-versed with um, data science process. Right, so this is essentially starting with business, uh, you know, a business case and problem definition, and then getting customer buy-in, 
connecting to data sources, data preparation, cleaning, modeling, analysis, evaluation of models, deployment, monitoring, and dashboard, right? So we need people with these skills as well. In a perfect world, we will have people from both backgrounds working together. Brilliant. Can, can you say those steps just for, for all the audience as well of that data science process? It was great, the business case right to the dashboard. So it starts with defining the problem. So this is essentially coming from the shop floor, okay, or, uh, you know, line manager, um, and they are seeing some kind of issue on the shop floor, and they define the problem. But defining the problem doesn't mean that it, it, it should be addressed, right? Maybe there are easier ways of addressing those problems. And that's where the business case comes in. You have to evaluate the business case. You have to evaluate what you know, what's the ROI and IRR and things like that. And if it's if it's good enough, then you can um, work with the customer. Sometimes it comes from the shop floor. Sometimes maybe you have a larger vision of the solution set, and you can approach your uh, manufacturing facilities and tell them, "Hey, we see this technology solving this problem. Would you be interested?" Right. So that's where. You need to work together with the customer to get a buy-in. Uh, and that's where the actual problem-solving process starts, right? So then you start connecting to your data sources, you prepare the data, clean it, PPL. And from there, you know, uh, this is, by the way, the most amount of time you spent in the whole process, right? So if you are, if you have clean data, probably 80% of your work is done. And that's when you get into modeling, analysis, evaluation of the model, uh, deploying the model. If your problem has been solved, you should have a clear-cut, um, uh, you know, sign-off process from your customer. If the uh, model uh, is evaluated and it meets those criteria, then you get into deployment. And once it's deployed, then obviously, which is a big challenge in our industry, right? So monitoring and dashboarding and things like that. Brilliant, excellent step-by-step -step approach there. And can you tell us then? about some of those business cases that you've been working on the last couple of years? What have been the priority ones which you've identified and had success? Let me just give you a brief background on Magna, right? So I am a, you know, I, I work with Magna. So it's one of the world's largest suppliers in automotive space. Uh, we are a mobility technology company uh, with a global entrepreneurial mandate team and an organizational structure that's designed to innovate like a startup. So our, our CEO, Swami Kodagiri, you know, he, he loves to say we are 65 year old startup, right? And so you, you can imagine what kind of mindset that brings to the employees, right? We are proud of our world-class manufacturing capabilities. And you can imagine that we are utilizing data science extensively to, um, you know, empower our manufacturing operations. So in manufacturing, the common applications um, of um, uh, data science, they are basically in predictive manufacturing, predictive quality, closed-loop process optimizations, scheduling, uh, demand forecasting, and energy consumption optimization, assembly line balancing, and so on, right? There, there are numerous applications. Um, and uh, because of the diversity of the products that Magna makes, uh, we tend to get an opportunity to work on almost all of these problems. And, and you know, you mentioned then the steps, of course, of a problem and starting with business identification. You say that the ETL takes up the biggest amount of that project. So if you take any of those particular projects, predictive manufacturing, quality, assembling, assembly plan balancing, demand forecasting, how long would something like that take? And what is the 
expectations up front. Of course, you can't get into numbers here, Rajiv, but what is the goal when you launch into a project? Is it saving money, making money? What's a success for a data science project? So when it comes to money, right, uh, normal in, um, metrics like IRR, you know, rate of return and uh, things like that, you know, ROI, uh, return on investment, those are the metrics we go by. Um, and in the end, it, it how fast the project goes, it depends on how many resources you can throw at it and how uh, eager your customer is to solve that problem. So in some cases, it can take only a couple of months. And in other cases where, uh, you know, we are working on uh, creating long-term uh, capabilities, it can take, you know, uh, several months, right? So that's how basically it goes. As I said before, um, we are going from industry 3.0, which was third industrial revolution, into industry 4.0, which is fourth industrial revolution. And for people then that are earlier in the process, I mean, Magna, the scale of Magna is a 65-year-old startup. I love that, Rajiv. And, and for smaller companies out there that don't have those resources, you know, do you have any advice or learnings that you've taken through your process and, and sort of advice on where they should start? I mean, it's all these use cases. How should they take step one, step two, step three? I would say it all starts with understanding your data sources and your business problem. So even before data sources comes your business problems, right? So where are you losing money? Is it, are you making too much crap? Or um, uh, are you, um, you know, not operating your uh, manufacturing lines at the capacity you planned them to run, right? So that, that to me is the starting point. From there, you need to understand uh, your manufacturing machines and your infrastructure. Can you readily connect to your infrastructure and start collecting data? Or is there more work that's needed there? And that's where you're, you will need to grow some OT routes. I'm sure every manufacturing company has OT side of uh, you know business, right? There are people who are taking care of their operational technology, um, but connecting that to harvest the data that is being produced um, is a challenge. Again, data science, uh, knowledge, you either need a data scientist um, or you need people who are uh, interested in data and they can start training themselves. Yeah. So you mentioned some of those challenges there. And I mean, earlier in the conversation, you said it's a sort of a small team of six or seven at Magna. Sometimes you see innovative tech and you bring it to the business. Other times the business brings challenges to you and, and, and you help solve those. How, I mean, you've, you, you've, very different backgrounds, right? You're experts in data science and controls and, and different innovative technologies and the domains are experts and, and what they've been doing for 20, 30 years. How do, do you find that there's a cultural challenge in working together and how do you get over that sometimes bottleneck? Everybody speaks the language of business. And if you don't speak the language of business, it's very difficult to sell an idea. It, it needs to be both way. That's to me, that's the common language. If you talk to uh, your counterparts in um, manufacturing and you're not talking business language, you're not going to sell your idea. So technology for technology's sake is not the best way forward, right? You need to come from um, using technology uh, to solve real business problems you know, that are hurting operations. 
So that's basically, to me, that's the challenge. Once we, uh, once we bridge this gap, uh, things start flowing smoothly. We can basically um, bring in our expertise in data and work with uh, the manufacturing side uh, on, on their expertise and you know, uh, solve a problem, no matter how complex it is. And come to a common understanding or a common data literacy or common business literacy. I, I really like that point as well, Rajiv. Yeah. It, you mentioned some of the areas that you've adopted data science already. You mentioned those use cases around quality manufacturing. Are there areas where adoption of data science and machine learning has been in some ways more difficult and you've avoided those particular areas? Um, I wouldn't say avoided, uh, but obviously there are several challenges uh, within any company right? that can hinder uh, or slow data science adoption. So data quality and availability can be one uh, challenge, right? So the processes are generating a large amount of data, but the quality and availability of this data uh, may not be consistent. So there are older manufacturing equipment that don't have any data connectivity, um, uh, you know. So for this, you might have to work with the equipment manufacturer or add sensors yourself and gateways yourself, uh, you know, use controls engineer. Uh, to do that and get data, right? So that that could be one challenge. Uh, the second aspect is really around structuring the data. Uh, you know, at, at a manufacturer like Magna, um, every controls engineer might want to put data in a in a different structure and uh, might want to approach the problem in a different way. So coming to uh, terms on how you structure this data is very uh, important, and that's where standardization comes into picture. Uh, there can also be, um, you know, organizational resistance. So, uh, you know, and, and here I'm talking in general about traditional automotive manufacturing companies. You know, they have well-established processes uh, and practices which have been proven for ages, right? These are companies that have been in, in existence for decades. Um, so implementing data science-driven solutions, it can be, you know, it, it will require significant organizational adjustments. So these are things like upskilling your employees, redefining roles, and fostering a data-driven culture. Another thing is, as I mentioned, skills gap, right? So companies face a skill gap um, because, um, you know, older uh, uh, companies have, you know, uh, people who were educated and trained a while ago, right? So when it comes to data science, it can be, um, there can be a skills gap. So this is where companies can partner with universities uh, to train their workforce or bring in external partners to train their workforce, right? So for example, Magna is partnering with the University of Toronto. Um, there are a couple of other things as well that, that are important to understand, uh, you know, for example, um, transformation, digital transformation, it is a slow process. So if there are expectations that within two months or three months, the whole enterprise will be transformed and we'll start seeing results, uh, it's not the right mindset to start with, you know, for companies that are just starting now, right? It, it is a slow process. It's going to take time, but you have to start somewhere and you better start somewhere. Uh, I mentioned the importance of business case that, that needs to be uh, mentioned again, because uh, if you pick the wrong business case, uh, you know, you're, you're doomed to failure, right? Uh, you will not be able to sustain the speed of digital transformation. And then finally, there are, within data science, there are issues around scalability, DevOps, MLOps, you know, machine learning and AI, they are kind of relatively newer fields. So 
uh, where, whereas in software engineering, DevOps is a very mature field. Um, MLOps is getting there. It's a very pertinent time to be having this conversation, especially the, the topic around upskilling. I've seen a lot of articles in the last couple of weeks, in the last couple of months about GPT, Rajiv, and, and the, yeah. the, the, the roles that GPT are going to take. And different analysts are saying 10% of roles, 20%, 30%. Quite, quite frightening figures in terms of how automation can can take people out of roles. And of course, the flip side of that is there'll be new jobs, of course, um, at the human interface of, of algorithms. But if, if you took yourself back to, to when you're launching into your career or, or even now an engineer that wants to upskill, like you said, what what are some of those tips? You know, what what should they be doing to make sure that they're not a part of that statistic around data science, looking to automate them out of what they're doing today? You know, I, I have put a lot of uh, importance on education, right, throughout my career. Uh, and uh, uh, I think this is a topic I am very passionate about. People find time for things that they are passionate about, right? So I think developing passion for educating your skill, uh, yourself and reskilling yourself, it should be, uh, you know, job number one for anyone, no matter where you're working. And that's investment in yourself and you pay your whoever you're working for through this investment, right? So make your education the priority, uh, you know, and you can, you can um, tweak your education around what you're working on. So it, it helps you be more efficient during your day, but that is, that should be priority number one, right? Um, there are, you know, a, a couple of challenges around this, right? So uh, the uh, the the biggest challenge is corporate jobs. They expose one to narrow set of problems, right? So new employees come in, and when they come in, they bring in innovation and they bring in new ways of solving world problems, right? And and that's what we want every employee to be. Um, the challenge is to sustain this innovative mindset, okay, with time. Because when you start working at a job for one year, five year, ten years, you stop getting exposed to new ideas from the outside. So chat GPT is scary if you don't leverage it. But if you leverage it, then it's your it's your friend. Right? And this is where successful professionals separate themselves uh, you know, through continuous learning. But Learning is uh, different from person to person. You know, the way people digest information is different from person to person. So there is some, you know, room to play around here. For some, it's, uh, you know, reading technical magazines or listening to podcasts or participating in conferences. Uh, but for others, it can be taking, um, you know, courses, you know, through, let's say, uh, in-person or online courses. Um, that have built-in, you know, evaluation test quizzes, and this can motivate them to digest their material better and cement concepts, right? Um, so for me, for example, uh, theoretical learning without practical application, it's, it's a wasted time, okay? So um, you have to have uh, on-job learning um, and pursue education while you're working related to your field. And that's exactly what you're doing, Rajiv. You mentioned Magna partnering with the University of Toronto. That, that sounds yeah. awesome. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
So Magna has a program. Uh, it's called Magna University, where uh, you know employees can uh, register themselves for courses. Uh, they offer uh, graduate degrees as well. Uh, again, uh, you have to take uh, uh, you know professional education related to what you're working on, and uh, it's a great opportunity for Magna employees to upskill themselves. You know they take classes during their workday. Uh, they get exposed to a lot of new interesting ideas. Um, and uh, it's a win-win situation, you know. I, I can only vouch for that and, and agree with that, Rajiv. We at Altair, we created a, a course called AI for Executives, and all of our execs at Altair have now gone through that course. So I think especially now, we've mentioned ChatGPT, there's so much buzz and hype about this technology, and it's very difficult, even for people that work in this field, to separate fact from fiction and to understand what that I'm reading about is actually relevant and important for me to know for my job and for my career and what is is bluster. So now all of our executives, we're all speaking from the same hymn sheet. We're all speaking the same language. Like you said, we're all speaking that language of business and not just speaking about technology for technology's sake, speaking about how technology can help us solve our business problems and help our clients solve their business problems. Yeah, so really, really important, that educational aspect. And I know, I don't know how you do it, Rajiv. I don't know how you balance the business with the academia. But like you said earlier, it's, it's important to do that, to sustain things. You, you mentioned resources, Rajiv. The, the courses, the Coursera, the YouTube. Anything else for, for people out there that are that are interested in, in upskilling a bit more themselves in this field? The uh, pandemic, right? Due to that and work from home, I discovered walking. And I used to love reading books, uh, but I discovered audio format consumption, right? So consuming books through audio format. So I, I have Audible and also podcasts. And I cannot tell you there's such good material out there. So I would highly encourage anyone who wants to retrain themselves uh, to check out, you know, um, audio books and uh, uh, podcasts. If you are into, you know, audible learning, uh, some people do like reading books, so for them, it's fine. So I love, um, you know, um, shows like um, uh, Productivity Show. It's a, it's a show uh, on Apple Podcasts that talks about how you improve your productivity. Um, in terms of books, um, there are books like Skin in the Game, so Nassim Taleb and anything written by him pretty much is, is actually pretty awesome. So check out all of his books. On software and data, um, you know, there's a podcast called ML Ops Podcast. I, I really like it. I usually listen to podcasts at twice the speed because my retention is probably around 5%. Um, and uh, I am not uh, really looking for, uh, you know, detailed um, uh, retention of that material. It's just... Sometimes uh, something really clicks. Uh, I'm going through a problem in my in my work life, and they mention some solution, and I just stop the podcast and make a note. And that happens several times in a week, uh, if you can believe it. In general, around ML ops, DevOps, and the importance of that, uh, there's a book I would highly recommend. It's called The Phoenix Project. Um, it's it's a storytelling kind of book that would take you through all aspects and pains and pleasures of you know, dealing with your MLOP and DevOps uh, issues. Um, on the data side, there's a book called Designing Data Intensive Applications that I think is a must read. 
I can keep going. You know, I have a lot of personal <laughs> psychology, you know, timeless classics. I, I think there's going to be a lot of walking done in the next while, Rajiv. We've a lot, we've a lot of audio books to listen to. That sounds great. Exactly. Rajiv, you mentioned MLOps a couple of times there and, and your sort of passion for that. I mean, uh, of course, you mentioned the, the analytical use cases you're working on and how MLOps is increasingly a topic of, of super importance. It's what I see generally in the market now. I've been to the Gartner Summit quite recently in London, and there they've said that still only 20% or so of machine learning models are put into production, which of course is, is never going to be enough in order to make this a success. So can you talk about the, the future of the data science space then? Is it MLOps? What else is coming down the road at us? Yeah, so I would say uh, that you talk about data science in general, right? Uh, there are some models that are not intended to get into production at all because you're trying to do root cause analysis. You know, you're just trying to understand your process. But once you have the model, um, you know, managing it becomes very complicated, especially if you want to scale, right? So if you have, if you are a person who's in charge of one line and that's all you have to do and you're a very data uh, you know, science-oriented person, uh, you might be able to just, uh, you know, create a model, connect it to data, run it, and then update it as you go along. But if you are working on different problems, which, you know, I'm lucky to be in that environment because of working for Magna, which is a large enterprise, and we, we see a lot of, uh, you know, uh, different problems uh, every day. That's where it becomes very important how you version your code, how you version your data, how you uh, version your um, models, how you version um, your pipelines, and also uh, how do you monitor them? You know, now you've deployed things, how do you monitor these things? So uh, this definitely becomes kind of the sore thumb of the whole process. and. Uh, Something that's not very fun, <laughs> but definitely needs to be done. Do you think this is something that centralized teams like your own, Rajiv, will be doing? You'll you'll be the, let's say, the, the core of MLOps and of custom model development and of quite complex things. And you mentioned the upskilling. Will those people in the domains and the lines of business, will they also need to do MLOps, MLflow and, and TensorFlow and these quite technical things? Or is there an easier... Uh, a lower barrier to entry for those people to, to start to do these things? Um, I think you are hitting upon two questions. You know, this is more about, you know, the term that I hear in the, in the wild is data democratization, right? So if you democratize the data, how is uh, th those, how are those models going to be, um, you know, managed in a sense? I think in a, in a, uh, Ideal world, um, just like software engineering, right? They have a testing team, they have a DevOps team, they have a deployment team, they have a software development team, and that's how they work, right? But in an ideal world, we will have a ML ops team that takes care of the deployment. Uh, so there is a lot of uh, IT side of things there, right? There is infrastructure, IT infra infrastructure that needs to be uh, spun up. Uh, uh, you know, deployment needs to be done, and then management of those things also need to happen. Um, 
ideally again my own opinion uh, if you if you talk about uh, um, data democratization or citizen data scientists you know people at the shop floor who are uh, trying to solve problems uh, they should have access to um, easily uh, get to the data they are interested in so if they are interested in let's say a machine and the data that machine is uh, producing and they come across a problem you know let's say the cycle time of that machine is very high for all of a sudden right and they want to see okay is the um, heating taking place the way it was taking place you know let's say three months ago when the cycle time was short they should be able to get to those signals and um, you know somehow plot those signals you need to um, you know also appreciate the fact that uh, um, uh, the newer generation right uh, of people who are now graduating and entering workforce today they have grown up expecting instantaneous access to information on anything that affects their life right it can be weather their heartbeat their sleep whatever right and if we want this generation to work for our manufacturing industry, we need to provide them access to data, okay, relevant to their daily job. You spoke a lot today then on the fourth industrial revolution and all the industrial revolutions. So when we look to the future, then we've already spoke a bit about data democratization. That could be the future or certainly governed data democratization. Is that, let's say, the fifth industrial revolution or what is the next big innovation within the manufacturing industry? The fifth industrial revolution is certainly been, being talked about right now, but you know I'm just going to talk about from the business side of things, right? Again, as I said, uh, data science to me is is a path to get to you know a, a state of a business, right? So to me, in the future, uh, we we can expect, let's say, in five years, uh, increased efficiency and lower production costs due to um, you know more. Uh, prevalence of automation and robotics in manufacturing processes, um, integration of IoT and industry four principles uh, to get interconnected manufacturing ecosystems where the suppliers are connected to the uh, you know tier, tier two suppliers are connected to tier one suppliers, tier one suppliers are connected to the OEMs. They are all working in unison. Um, there is also technologies around three D printing and manufacturing that that would you know, we can start expecting those also to uh, play more role in the near future. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the pandemic and the crisis uh, that just happened, it's also pushing everybody to, um, uh, you know, address supply chain disruptions and global economic shifts. Um, so this will probably lead to some reshoring and distributed manufacturing, right? Um, in 10 years, I would see these trends maturing more, right? So there will be, uh, for example, um, smart manufacturing, uh, you know, AI machine learning will be commonplace in manufacturing, um, full integration of IoT and industry core, right? So seamless data-driven decision-making across interconnected manufacturing facilities, sustainable manufacturing practices will be a norm. So this is, you know, uh, essentially uh, where we stop um, exploiting our environment and really start thinking about how we can come up with you know uh, ways of making products uh, without disturbing it right so um workplace workforce transformation uh, 
also needs to happen. I think it's happening now, but not at the speed that we really need it. So hopefully in 10 years, you know, employee upskilling and retraining would adapt uh, to new manufacturing uh, landscape. And this would continue for the next 20 years or so. So that's what I would uh, expect uh, for the future. And and all those benefits, of course, are coming to, to Magna, to the manufacturing company. Uh, accelerated production, I guess, reduced scrap, uh, more automation, um, more sustainable production, like you said. To the end customer then, to me, I'm buying a vehicle, Magna's parts are in the vehicle. How, how am I benefiting as a consumer? Do you have any thoughts on that? That's a very interesting question, you know. So where does the cycle start, really, the business cycle, right? It starts with a consumer wanting a product. Sometimes they're not aware of what they want. So in that case, you know, you have people like Steve Jobs coming in and telling them what they want. But essentially, it's, it's the consumer who consumes it. Somebody designs it. Somebody puts it into production and then uh, goes to the consumer and then it goes to waste, right? Uh, or, or, you know, end of end of life or uh, whatever. Um so with data, we can really understand uh, how the product is being used by the consumer, and that would affect the design of the product itself, right? Uh, so far, that was driven by marketing uh, people and getting feedback from consumers through, um, you know, questionnaires and so on. But we can now embed, um, you know, uh, intelligence within the product that can give us feedback on how the product is actually being used, and so the produce, so the consumers can expect a higher quality product that is designed to exactly what they want, right? So mass customization, for example. There's also benefits around cost, so you can expect all these efficiencies through smart manufacturing to bring the cost down, make the products higher quality while being sustainable. Better products at lower cost. Yes. So win-win, Rajiv. Get back to work. We want to see these things. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I'm working on it night and day. <laughs> Brilliant. Rajiv, we're out of time. I'll maybe ask one last question, but this is this is great content. Really appreciate your time. With all of this, we've already heard the excitement for the consumer, the excitement for Magna. What about the excitement for you, Rajiv? In this future of 5, 10 years, 20 years, what makes you Rajiv Verma, most excited. Okay, so as I said, um, I am pretty happy if I am able to work on complex problems and you know uh, expose myself to things that I haven't done before uh, and learn new things, uh, pick up new skills to solve those problems. Right, uh, that makes life exciting. Right, right. So if you Think about happiness research, right? So basically, the crux is setting small goals and achieving them uh, on a regular basis versus going for long goals and waiting for years to achieve them. And the way I bring that up in my life is, uh, as I said, I find learning new things or working on new domains uh, enjoyable. Um, I also find um, teaching and um, taking courses, you know, another way of doing that, right? So uh, to me, those are small goals that I set for myself. And I guess my bar for being happy is pretty low, but I keep happy <laughs> doing this. That's the most important thing. Rajiv, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to keeping in touch and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Sean. 
Thanks for joining. Now next on the show, we have Johan Kohli, Head of Innovation and Partner at Accurate Consulting. Hope to see you there.